This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. I'm Dr. Jeff Burns, Chief of Critical Care at Boston Children's Hospital and Harvard Medical School, and we're very pleased to have with us today Dr. Alan Goldman. Dr. Goldman is the Chief of Critical Care at the Great Ormond Street Hospital in London. Alan, welcome. Thank you very much. It's a huge honor to be here and to be doing this with you. Uh, so thank you for this opportunity. I truly appreciate it. Alan, um, we're interested to talk to you today about your work. Um, many years ago, you became interested in safety. Um, you indeed uh, were one of the originators of what's known as the Formula One handover process, which we use um, here at Boston Children's Hospital when a patient's coming up from the operating room and being admitted to the intensive care unit. Uh, you've equally been uh, very active in leading these um, what are called risky business seminars. And those are terrific seminars on patient safety where you're bringing in people from other industries and talking about risk and how to mitigate risk. Could you back us up and tell us how did you become interested in patient safety? And could you tell us about some of the programs that you've evolved at the Great Ormond Street London uh, to make your program uh, more safe and effective? Thanks, Jeff. I think first thing to just say is we're on a journey and we haven't cracked it all by any means. And we're learning as, as you are. And, being at Boston has been a huge learning for us backwards as well. So the way things started was we, at the, in the, at the beginning when the, the arterial switch was coming into play in cardiac surgery, I work in the cardiac intensive care unit, we initially had fantastic success with the operation and then had a number of failures. And our head of department at the time and leading surgeon, Professor Delaval, uh, besides being an extra excellent surgeon, also was a very lateral thinking man. And when this happened, he decided he couldn't carry on and he went to another organization and to retrain with the best surgeon in the country. But he also started re reading Jim Reason's books on human factors and then went to see Jim Reason and we started a study uh, with the human factors expert postdoc people coming into the unit at looking at which were the human factors associated with outcomes after cardiac surgery. And one of the things that came out as a high-risk uh, event at that time that was noted by the human factors person was the transition and the handoff of patients from the cardiac theater team who had intimate knowledge of the patient, who would then hand over the patient to the ICU team in about eight minutes or 10 minutes and then walk away. And that became a critical interface. And um, myself and another one of the surgeons, a bit of petrol heads, were watching a Formula One Grand Prix one day and looking at uh, watching the race and Professor Elliott, who was the other surgeon, sort of said, these guys are the world experts in how teams come together, configure as a unit at a pit stop and perform a complex task. And so then through a fellow we had on the, at the time on the unit, Sid Watkins, we tracked down and got into one of the Formula One teams to learn how they did it and then translated those lessons to us. And so for me, that was the start of sort of the safety work I was involved in, one, learning from others, but two, starting to learn about human factors and team interfaces uh, that I became interested in and continue on that journey in a very modest fashion. 
Um, Alan, that's fascinating that you look to another industry and who would have thought uh, Formula One racing. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I take it you have a protocol. Would you be willing to share that protocol on the handover process with colleagues around the world? Absolutely. It would be a great pleasure. And all I can say, it's an embarrassingly simple process that anybody can do. It's, uh, so it would be a great pleasure to do so. Um, so here is your protocol now. Could you walk us a little bit through this? So we divide it up into three very simple phases. Phase one is technology transfer. We try and do that in silence unless people see something going wrong and everybody has a role in that. We then have a safety check uh, and the anaesthetist who's in charge of the process at this point identifies who they're handing over to. We then go through an aid memoir or a checklist of a standardized handover and after that, we discuss uh, an anticipated recovery or anticipated plan. Either wake and wean the patient, watch for six hours, or I'm really worried about this patient, um, and we're aiming for a period of stability. I wonder if I could turn now and ask our colleagues around the world a question. Uh, could you first tell us the city and country where you're located? And the question is this. Does your PICU use a formal handover process for complex patients coming from the operating room to the intensive care unit? And if you could tell us yes or no. And secondly, if you do use a handover process, is it the Formula One handover process or something similar to what Dr. Goldman has uh, just described? Alan, um, could you explain to us, uh, do you have a framework for thinking about this? Because uh, from what I know about complex organizations, you know, there are people issues, there are process issues, there are structural issues. How do you, how do you break it down and, and think about it in a kind of a coherent, logical fashion? I think you're right, Jeff. It's a very complex process that we're learning. But for me, at the heart of the whole process, it's all about um, putting the child at the, at the center. And our hospital policy is the child first and always. But it's then about creating a culture around safety and a vision for it. And that's dependent on the leaders. And the leaders need to create that culture of the best possible outcomes you can, um, about all teach, all train, about continuous improvement, about safety first. And once you've created that culture is the, the beginning. It's then about teams and people about having the right people in the right place, with the right skill mix, in the right ratios, all the time, 24-7. And I think that's the key bit. And then building that team to have the capacity to deliver the, the, the quality of care you want and the capacity to learn about safety and improvement. So that's the, the, the next big component. After that, I think it's about standardizing whatever you can and innovating where you can't standardize. And in terms of the standardizing, I think that's quite broad what we can do. We can standardize our data and our measurement. We can standardize our bundlers of care. And we can standardize a lot of our communication. So that's sort of a broad framework. And I'd like to add in two other aspects to that. And that is, I think, as an ICU, we have a responsibility outside of the ICU in terms of safety. And that's providing sort of a safety net around the hospital and probably even wider around your network of hospitals that you're serving. And the last component, I think, is what we can learn from families. So that's sort of how I see the overall embrace. It's about culture at the heart. It's about people and teams standardizing what you can, innovating what you can't, 
providing a broader safety net and learning from patients. Alan, so I wonder, could we talk about teams first, you know, the, the people? How do you know that your staffing mix is right and that you're deploying your staffing as optimally as possible? I think we don't know that, and I think it's the one area where actually we huge gap in research of what, what is the right teams in an ICU, um, what is the right nursing ratios, for example, how many patients per fellow. We just don't, we don't have good evidence for that. But I think we're all very well staffed in terms of good nursing, good uh, medical teams in the daytime hours. I think we're, certainly we're very vulnerable is when you go into the after hours, um, staffing sk uh, skills you know, narrows down so dramatically. So I think that's one issue. And when you think of after hours, it sort of makes up 100 out of the 168 hours in a week when we run on about a third or a quarter of the staffing capacity. But I think that's an international phenomena. I think another issue is sort of, um, do we have attendings or consultants in-house after hours? I think not, you know, I'd be interested to hear from the audience about how many places have that. I know in your unit in Boston you do, in ours we don't, and that would be an interesting thing to hear from teams. I'd also be interested in nursing ratios, um, nurses per, per patient uh, in different places around the world and how we could learn from that. One thing that we've been trying to look at is nursing ratios and do we have the unit well staffed. And so we do have this dashboard that you've just seen on the screen that shows all patients, but we have one screen we can go to that shows an overview of the number of patients on each unit and their dependency, and then how many nurses we have for this shift, tonight shift, and the next shift. And that gives you a little bit of a glance into the future about what your, certainly your nursing staffing levels are and whether you should be cutting back, should you be closing the unit, or should you be shifting staff around between your different resource areas. So I think that's, a, that's something that we've been working on in the, in the recent past. I know your colleague, Paddy Hickup, huge respect for us, done a fantastic study on nursing ratios um, and, and of how they affect outcomes. Yes, Alan, and um, we're going to flash now um, uh, Patty's uh, study here as you see the citation and the abstract. We wonder now if we could pause and ask our colleagues around the world two questions. Could you first please type your city and country location? The first question is this. Do you have a 24-hour coverage at the ICU consultant or ICU attending level in your intensive care unit? And the second question is, what is the nurse-to-patient ratio in your pediatric intensive care unit? We're back now with Dr. Goldman. Alan, uh, some 20 years ago, we picked up, um, as a good example of another practice from your intensive care unit at Great Ormond Street Hospital, um, a weekly case conference where you know, all the faculty and fellows, registrars, residents get together in a room and we discuss uh, a particular case and all aspects around it. I understand now that you've modified that weekly conference a little bit. Could you tell us about your weekly conference at the Great Ormond Street Hospital London? To me, this is the heart or the guts of the safety program in the unit. So it's an opportunity where once a week the whole team gathers and they review the good, the bad and the ugly of the week before. And when we started this meeting, uh, I don't know, 10 plus years ago, it initially we just picked cases we thought we should discuss during the week and some people felt picked on, why are you doing this case was my case, 
And we always had these tensions. And in that time, we needed an independent chair who we used, Bob Anderson, uh, who was a very strong personality in the department, who was um, an anatomist. And Bob then had literally a football, red cards and yellow cards. And if people got a bit out of hand, it would be, Dr. Goldman, that's a red card comment, please. Can you temper down how you mm. do it? And so this now has evolved. And um, when I did the ATP program at Utah, I sort of had a different approach to saying, okay, each week, let's do this meeting exactly the same, driven by metrics that we wanted to follow. And we would discuss patients that triggered on the metrics. And so everybody now knows it's exactly the same way people could add or subtract metrics. So that's the first bit is one is, do you have a standardized format of doing it? And just start as we did very humbly with two or three things and then build it with time. The second thing about the meeting, if I was advising people, is that data has to be accurate and, and people have to believe it. So that's the second. But the third bit is how do you get the team to interact with the data and have really good discussion about a drive to improve? And I think it's really important who you select if you're going to run these meetings to chair these meetings. You know, somebody in your department who everybody sort of trusts who can temper the conversation that nobody's going to walk out the room and jump off the building, where you can have honest discussions about issues with a, with a goal of improving, but equally where it's not a blame culture. And that's a very fine line you tread. And I would also advise for people who are going to run that, that if you do have a sensitive case that's come up, and that does for all of us at times where something's terrible gone wrong, is you need some briefing before the meeting, discussion with the people involved as are they happy at presenting and how you're going to do that. So I think a lot of effort goes into it and we certainly put a huge amount of effort into the meeting. It's not compulsory, it's very multi-professional. We have the technicians coming, the nurses coming, the intensive care teams, the trainees, the surgeons, uh, the cardiologists and, and other teams. And it forms a focus for the unit. And so if people want to make an announcement or say something, they'll always email, say, do you mind bringing it up there? Because that's the focus for how the unit, uh, you know, the, the key sort of communication place. So the first thing is um, we start off, as I mentioned, um, with a standard process that we do. And the way we do that is we, the first thing we do is we look in the, when we do it in the cardiac ICU, we look at our no complication rate because that's easy with cardiac surgery. And we start with some positives. Then we go on to flow issues, any complications with patient flows. Then we go on to a series of dashboards of uh, morbidity and safety. And then any patients who've sadly died will discuss them. And then in the end, we try and tie up with action plans and where we're at with that. And that's perhaps when we could improve on that last component. But I'll get to that in a minute. So as you can see, the first thing we do is a no complication rate. And it's important to stress to people that, wow, 80 or 90% of patients went through this week without a complication. And really, well, well done to everybody. That is fantastic. And what we're going to discuss now for the next hour or the 5% where things didn't go so well. And then the next thing we introduced is a save of the week. And so we send out a communication the day before asking people to feedback 
any colleague or person who really did a fantastic bit of work or saved a patient or a situation that week. So for example, last week we got a clinical nurse specialist who picked up a patient deteriorating at home who they were following up and got that patient in. So sometimes it's very simple things that are very important. We then go on to, as I mentioned, our flow challenges or flow failures. So any cancelled cases that week, any patients we couldn't get into the units because we're full, any delayed discharges. And we run SPC charts that you can see on that. And so I've just flashed through that. And then we plot each patient as to their anticipated recovery. And any outliers, we'd just have a short discussion of you know, why is that patient staying long? And there's always a very good reason for that. But it just means patients and issues going wrong can't hide. We then go on to a series of these dashboards um, that cover different aspects of the team. So here we have a dashboard saying the time since our last central line infection, time since our last wound infection, time since our last serious untoward incident, and our prescribing errors. And if any of those go red in the last week, so they're less than seven days, we will discuss that patient, and then we'll look at some charts, either SPC charts like Central Line, or more frequently now we're using these QSUM graphs to look at that patient in the context of the last 2,000 patients. And so what you can see on a QSUM graph is on the x-axis is the last 1,500 patients. And on the y-axis, it goes up every time you have one of those complications, whether it's a wound infection, a line infection, or a death. Ideally, you'd like that graph flat at the bottom, but the, the good thing about these graphs is that you can see clusters happening when the graph suddenly starts going steep and you can then intervene. So there we had a cluster of wound infections and we introduced a bundle of care around wound infection to respond to that. Um, we also monitor very carefully our uh, prescribing errors and have made strides on that. We use paper, not electronic prescribing. Um, we look at any readmissions in the last 48 hours, any accidental extubations. We look at serious sort of complications from a low cardiac output state after surgery, so patients needing renal support, CPR, post-op ECMO, or severe gut hyperperfusion. And again, we would look through our Q-sums, and each dotted line there is a new year, and so you can see how you're progressing with that particular complication after time. What would really be fantastic if we could add a few more units so you had your own unit and then some others because that's what really makes people suddenly sit up in their chair and, oh, uh, Boston are doing a lot better than us and then you change the, the conversation a bit because people start getting immune to looking at their own complications. So that's just another point. These are neurological complications post-surgery uh, and then any patient who sadly dies, we discuss that patient in much greater depth and we would look at our overall mortality as a crude mortality score. But much more importantly, if you can see here, these are VLAD plots that were developed by my colleague Kate Brown and surgeon Victor Sang. And these plots show some correction for uh, the complexity of the case. So every tiny dot on that graph is a patient. And if the patient survives, the graph goes up ever so little. If, and it goes up according to the severity or the complexity of the patient. 
if a patient unfortunately dies, then you get a falling in the, in the graph. And depending on how complex that patient is will be the degree to which that graph drops. And you then have, across the UK, you'd have a graph that if you put all the, all the units in the, in the UK would be flat on the zero line there. And you can then see how you're performing according to the average. But very importantly, that graph allows you to see trends in your mortality um, over time, a real-time monitoring. So that's another thing we, we've started to look at, which we need to evolve further. Alan, um, as you noted at the start, um, the engagement in this process is, is dependent on people believing that the data is useful and accurate. Um, I imagine there's a fair amount of work to collect this data. How many FTEs do you have to devote to just collecting this data? Yeah. So this whole process doesn't come cheap or easy. And um, we have a, an absolutely brilliant outcomes and manager and analyst called Vicky Banks. And she prepares this every week. And I unfortunately asked her how long it took, because I didn't really want to hear the answer. But it takes her on a Thursday, we do the meeting on a Friday, eight hours to prepare it. She goes through all our data, every registrar, handover to look for things that have gone wrong in our data sets. And then she prepares that through Thursday. She pings that over to myself and another colleagues who run the meeting. We then meet up with a fellow in the late afternoon to pick up the cases that have triggered and who we want to discuss. The fellows then start preparing that through the evening and a few, few more emails and then by the morning it's, it's ready to go. So we invested in an outcome team because of the importance of that and, the, and a commitment that data is really where it's at for learning. If one doesn't have that, the finances to do that or the luxury to do that, I still think you can do this, but you just need to start off modestly. And every unit could develop some system, for example, cardiac arrests, and just start collecting how many cardiac arrests they had this week. Most hospitals now will be collecting some infection uh, metrics on line infections, uh, bloodstream infections. So just building them up, you certainly would have readmissions within 48 hours, that data would be easy to collect and accidental extubations. So you could start with very simply get one going, get the discussions going, and then add on the next one as you, as you could. I wonder if I could turn now uh, to our colleagues around the world and ask a question. And could you first tell us the city and country that you're located in? And the question is this, uh, do you have a weekly um, meeting as described uh, here by Dr. Goldman? Um, and if so, uh, is it standardized in the way that Dr. Goldman described, where you're looking at standardized data along a consistent framework, or is it case-based? And the second question is, is uh, the meeting that you have weekly, is it a discussion among uh, the physicians, or is it a multidisciplinary discussion as well? And this is separate from any morbidity or mortality process that you do. We're more interested to know whether you do a weekly discussion um, along these lines. So as I mentioned earlier, we try and standardise what we can, and that includes a whole bundle, a number of bundles of care. One that may be of interest is our prescribing or medication bundle. And so what that involves is the pharmacist meeting all the doctors when they start going through what the bundle is and any common errors we have. But then we have these prescribing stations around the ICU. 
and at those prescribing stations we put all the resource necessary to prescribe, all the information you need. But we have big do not disturb signs there and try to change the culture that when people are at the prescribing desks they're not interrupted unless of course absolutely necessary. And then the last bit of the prescribing bundle is a very tight feedback loop on errors that have happened and we do that at the end of each ward round every day. The, the prescribing errors, the serious ones in the last 24 hours. Alan, um, I know you have a very interesting program, um, uh, in particular at night, um, as part of your uh, effort to increase safety outside of the ICU for the ward or floor beds. Could you tell us about that program? I believe you call it intensive care outreach. Yeah, so this is an evolving program, but I think, as I mentioned earlier, I think we have a big responsibility about some kind of safety net over the hospital to try and get patients in at the right time um, before they've deteriorated too much, and then patients who we've discharged out to the wards to be able to follow them up. And so, and the, the, I think it's the hospital outside the ICU, certainly in our setting, that's probably the most vulnerable. And so our hospital at night program really starts with, we have a handover where the hospital is handed over from the day to the night shift. This is outside of, of ICU. And at that program, the, each team will come in and present patients they called flagged patients or patients who will need to be watched overnight. So that sort of sets the tone and the basis. We have an intensive care fellow who will go and attend that meeting and then we'll work with the senior nurse on for the hospital at night called the clinical site practitioner in following up some of those patients and the recently discharged patients. So that's sort of at the start of the, the night at 8.30pm. Uh, we have the, the sit-down handover for the whole hospital. Then they'll go out and see patients who they need to see. And then at 1am, the whole hospital at night team, uh, the senior nurses for the hospital, and the uh, medical staff and the intensive care outreach fellow will meet and have a huddle about where are we at the moment and are there any other issues that are arising. And then the hospital, like many other hospitals now, will have an early warning scoring system like uh, the, the CHOOSE score, or we have the PUSE, the Pediatric Early Warning System, to try and alert to early deteriorating patients. And other components that the ICU have been involved in in the outreach has in the past with helping with simulation training on the wards. But as a hospital, we invested in this program, um, which was six intensive care fellows and one consultant to provide this outreach cover for the hospital. This intensive care outreach program that we have was started, initiated and got going by Andy Petros, which has been a great success within the unit in moving forward to provide that network. So that's where we are. We're still evolving um, and I think we can still do it better. But I think this is an, uh, and the next phase of, I think, where we need to go in intensive care um, to provide a, a safety net. The other thing that our intensive care outreach fellows do with the senior nurse of the hospital is they see every patient who's left the ICU within four hours of discharge and then they follow up those patients every 12 hours for 48 hours. I wonder if I could turn now to our colleagues around the world and ask a question. Could you first again state your city and country location? And the question is this, does your hospital have a formal early warning score that you use to monitor patients on the ward or floor setting, uh, as Dr. Goldman said, uh, called Pews at Great Ormond Street, London, called Choose in Boston, 
uh, do you have such a scoring system, a formal scoring system to alert you to a declining trajectory of the patient's physiology? And the second question is, uh, does your ICU provide a uh, safety net uh, procedure of some kind where uh, one of the physicians from the ICU goes out on a regular basis to uh, provide surveillance um, for those patients who are flagged on the floor as uh, possibly being at high risk for deterioration during the night. We're back now with Dr. Goldman. Alan, um, I know that you've also got a very interesting approach to trying to uh, really understand the experience uh, of families and get them involved in this safety process. Could you describe that for us? Yeah, I think the families are a massive resource for what goes on. They spend days and months sometimes in the unit. And so there are, num there are a number of ways we can do it. We've had focus groups. We have a party that sort of Christine Pierce organizes where we then have sort of babysitters for the children and we have a focus group there to learn from families. And we have another project that's not going on on the ICU, but going on on our renal ward, which sort of won one of these Shine Awards, where the families are given a chart, as you can see, every day, and they fill in any safety issues that they observe. And then that feeds to the head nurse on that unit who just deals with the problem. It doesn't go wider. It's just a local, internal, ongoing improvement around that. So I think, there's, I think we're only touching on what we can learn from families. I wonder if I could turn now and ask our colleagues around the world a question. Could you first uh, write where you are located, your city and country? And the question is this. Do you have a formal mechanism, uh, such as just described by Dr. Goldman, where you query the families um, for their perceptions about the quality of care while their uh, child is in the hospital, whether it's to ask about safety concerns or any other concerns? Alan, this has been a wonderful overview, and I'm sure I speak for my colleagues around the world when I ask the question, so where are we going next? What are the next big innovations and how we should think about improving safety and resiliency in the ICU? Endless question. I think our focus that we're going to try and look at now is big data and can we predict events using masses of data. So that's one as, as, as you're starting to do in Boston. The next I'm interested in is this resilience engineering and, start, and can we learn from what we do right as opposed to what we do wrong? Mm. Interesting concept to, to look at. I think benchmarking between units will make us all raise our game. I think that's the next phase to look at. And then I think an evolution of our outreach to the wards and to other hospitals within our network. And I think we always need to think about imagining the unimaginable in terms of what could go wrong um, for sort of major incident planning. So I think that's m probably wraps it up in a nutshell. And one other one I'd add is feeding back some long-term data and quality of life data and outcome back to the unit to look at what events and what safety issues could have triggered that so many years ago and learning back that way. Alan, this has been an absolutely wonderful overview of how you've thought about safety issues over the years and implemented them at Great Ormond Street London Hospital, and we appreciate your sharing them with our colleagues around the world. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, this is an absolutely brilliant program, so it's a real honor and a pleasure. But I'd like to just conclude to say that we are just, we're on a journey with this 
we haven't cracked it and it's an ongoing cycle of learning. So thanks for this opportunity. It's been very useful to reflect on it. Well said. Thank you. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org. Thank you.